remember being physically sick in the gutter on my way to the office, but there's nothing you can do. Why were you sick? Because of some news I'd just received from the hospital, and you're not wanted at the hospital. It's not useful for you to be there. So the first thing I had to do is call my wife to tell her the thing that I'd been told. I recall for a couple of years arriving at those doors, then physically doing this and then walking through the doors to try and deal with and not separate what was going on at home versus at work. By the age of 30, he was a father of three with a career path set in stone, then becoming CEO at Havasts while dealing with massive pressures at home. Yeah, that was one of the most frightening moments of my career, making that phone call. What were you scared of? It felt really, really counter to my principles. And the truth of it is, I went because I needed the money. And I was unashamed that my family was the most important thing at that point. I'd had my leaving due. Oh, oh wow. I left the agency and then I walked back in a week later. And everyone thought, oh no, he's, he's lost his memory. <laughs> yeah. No, you so, imagine how weird that you is. You don't that work was, here anymore. It was so weird. <laughs> I realised that there's another way of leading. And by 18 months in, we become a runner-up in the campaign agency the year. You know, we took us from nowhere to some big pitch wins. I think we came second in the campaign new business. You're showing there is another way to do things, that you can be caring, you can be honest, you can be vulnerable, can speak your mind and have a point of view without being an idiot. By being truthful, you can enact the best policy and you can always keep a clearer head when you choose to use honesty. Amen. Greetings, I'm Ashley Samuels McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became. Where we unveil the unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. Hi, I'm Zavaris and this is How I Became Group CEO at Havas Creative in the UK. Born into a clash of two worlds, our guest's story begins. Although living in a world of contrasts can sometimes make it hard to fit in. Being able to see early life in a way that most don't get to see. He was always reminded, just because you're lucky now, doesn't mean you will always be. By the age of 30, he was a father of three, with a career path set in stone. Then becoming CEO at Havas, while dealing with massive pressures at home. A man with many perspectives to share, so let's leave no more minutes wasted. Introducing Savarice, Group CEO of Habas Creative. You, I love it. Welcome. Thank you. So Habas, a French advertising agency. Let's just give, for those watching who may be not in advertising or want to know about Habas, this company you're part of, one of the largest integrated marketing agencies in the world made up of 316 offices located in 75 countries, 11,000 employees globally. You are UK Group CEO of Havas Creative. Tell us, give people a, what is the structure of Havas? Where do you fit into that? What's your responsibility? Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, so Havas is one of the world's largest global advertising networks, for want of a better phrase. Um, we're proudly one of the smallest, uh, because, and I say proudly because it, I think it makes us fleet of foot and we feel like we're where we need to be, uh, not every single location on the planet. Um, uh, Havas is split into three sort of verticals, if you like. Uh, Havas Health, Havas Media, and Havas Creative Group. Uh, and, uh, and I sit within Havas Creative Group in the UK, 
and I am responsible for around about seven, 800 people uh, in the UK. We're all focused on uh, creating uh, communications for our clients, whether that be advertising or um, uh, customer experience comms, social, uh, you name it, uh, PR. Uh, we um, cater for all briefs and across all disciplines. So um, so that's who Havas are very broadly. And Havas is part of, Havas Creative is part of the, the Havas uh, holding company, which is also massive organization uh approximately 2.4 billion in revenues in 2022 mm. um, and uh and the history anything about the history you can tell us about us yeah yeah i'll probably get this wrong but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but in if, i mean have us it's difficult if you're sitting in the uk to understand um uh have us's history it's it's a, you know it's an almost 200 year old organization um, I've had it described to me, whether this is factually correct or not, as it's kind of the French Reuters originally. It started as a, a news desk, I, th- I believe. But I think it was the first ever news something. You carry on. I'll yeah, double yeah. check my stuff. So, uh, so, so, so it has been there um, for a long time and has a real place in in French uh, business culture. World's first news agency there you go. created in 1835. There you go. Like wow. The did. French Reuters, I kind of got it wrong. That was <laughs> lucky in case any of my bosses end up listening to this. But, so yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, it, it, the other thing to say is within the French market, you know, it's a very dominant brand and, uh, and force as well. So, uh, you know, one of the jobs I sort of set myself was to um, create the same strength of reputation for Havas in the UK as as it's got in in France, which is often difficult outside a, a you know a agency's home market. So, mm. well, we'll talk about how you're doing that and what you're yeah. doing. Um, and uh, you might know the work of Havas Creative when it comes to Christmas. Have your elf a merry Christmas is one of your pieces, indeed. Uh, bringing your favourite elf to the Asda store. Um, amongst many other great things. As an Asda colleague, most importantly, we, we put him to work in the stores. Love that. Brilliant. Um, now, that's Havas. Gives context as to who you are and what you're, what you're doing. And now you. This is your story. This is how do you become the UK group CEO of such an organization with so many, you know, with so many people you're responsible for um, I think there's three chapters to your life that we're going to walk through today. Chapter one, the intriguing and uniquely challenging dynamic of your childhood, which I think has led to a lot of the things you push for today. Chapter two, the challenge of managing personal and family challenges, all the while building your career and every year seemingly getting more and more responsibility uh, and more and more other family members to deal with, the people you're working with almost. Uh, chapter three, how you made the leap to CEO um, and the unique and difficult circumstances under which you're in, again, personally, while making that transition. So we're going to explore all of that today. Um, let's take it back. Let's take it let's back. Do it. Let's do it. Crystal Palace. Yeah. Where it all began. And I think a large part of your passion stems from, let me mention this too. 19th of April, 2023, you were announced as the new chair of the IPA Talent Leadership Group. 
where you will play a key part in shaping the IPA's mission to attract new and diverse talent into Adland while creating inclusive workplace cultures through the IPA and industry-wide initiatives. So this is something you're taking on a responsibility to, to improve in the industry. And I think we'll get onto that later, but I think a lot of this passion does stem from life growing up. So tell us about life at the beginning. I will. Well, the first thing I would say is, I mean, it's nice of you to sort of frame it as a challenge. I would not describe my, uh, you know, my, my youth or upbringing as, you know, as a very difficult or indeed unique challenge. But I, I you know, I guess, uh, where to start, I, you know, we, we've t talked about this before, but I, um, there, there's sort of two sides to my, uh, to my family. My, uh, my mum, uh, is, uh, is from, uh, North London and my dad's from, uh, Sheffield, Yorkshire. Uh, and one of the one parent is from a very working class background, and the other one's from a relatively posh or middle class uh, background. And when I say that, everyone always thinks it's the northerner who's the working class one. <laughs> but um, so there, you see your fir your first sort of uh, piece of uh, discrimination go on because it's actually my mum who was brought up on a council estate up in um, Finchley and um, uh, and shared a flat with her, you know, with her mum and and, and her nan and uh, and my dad. Uh, who uh, grew up uh, in the suburbs of Sheffield uh, to, uh, uh, you know, in, in, a fa in a solicitor's family, sort of uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, doing very well in the community and sort of relatively sort of um, pillars of that community, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So what was that like growing up? Because you've, you've got these two sides of your family, which you spend time with, with both. Both, uh, yeah, have lived a very different life experience, what was that like for you as an individual? Well, I can only re reflect on it now, right? Because at the time, it, it is what it is, and you don't know any different. You think, I, I don't know whether you think everyone's like that. Maybe you start to realise everyone's different uh, quite early on, but you don't really understand that that you, that anything can be anything other than how it is for you. So, so my reflections are more exactly that reflections from where I sit now on the things that you know, the things that, and stories that that shape me there, but. Um, but it was interesting because, because, you know, on the one hand we would, you know, I'd have family, um, uh, that, that were sort of, uh, stiff upper lip and, uh, and talking in a certain way. And on the other hand, I would have, you know, much, what I would describe as much more grounded, uh, uh, family who are prepared to be much more honest and, and say things how they are. But growing up in South London, which, you know, maybe we'll come on to in, in a minute, um, it, uh, it it was interesting because you know at, at primary school I was very much the poshest kid in the state's primary and then you know then I went off to a private school and I was probably one of the least posh kids in the in the private school so uh, you know I don't want to pretend I am um, uh, I have suffered or struggled but uh, it was always interesting being not quite uh, centre uh, uh, of one place or other always feeling slightly on the on the edges of both of them uh, I know lots of people have uh, much greater reason to have felt on the edges than me but you know that was interesting for me because I felt that part of my story was always uh, you know I was leaning in on one bit or other rather than sort of being able to own it all and one of the great things about you know sitting here with you people being even remotely interested in in this so I can sort of bring it all out in the open now and that's one thing I've always wanted to be very honest about you know because actually the reality of my upbringing was it was very privileged 
Um, uh, I just happened to have seen it through the eyes of, uh, you know, of people who knew that it wasn't necessarily always like that. My nan and my mum still will say, you know, clogs to clogs in two generations, Zav, don't, you know. So I had this work ethic sort of built into my psyche from, you know, from a very young age. Now, it's unfair to say that wasn't, you know, it was equally from both parents, but my mum was absolutely determined that, that we were going to move forward and, and I was going to, you know, uh, make something of myself. Uh, and, um, and I think that was driven by the fact that that's what she'd had to do. So you, you, you go to Dulwich College, that's yeah. where, where you went yeah, to school, yeah. right? And so, yeah, you're going through this life experience of, and, and I, I, it's, you know, I hear what you say that, you know, it's not a, it's not a real life struggle, but at the time when you're 15 and you just want to fit in, it's hard, you know, if you don't feel like, oh, these aren't really my people and, oh, I don't really feel like I fit in here. It's, it's not easy. And I think that's. What what do you think that's done to shape who you are today? I wouldn't have described it as a very creative environment. I mean, that's the first thing to say. Um, I you know I actually loved sport, but I wasn't very good at the sports that mattered. You know, um, uh, rugby was what it was all about. I think I managed to make the you know the third fifteen for a couple of games, but mostly you know I was sort of fourth fifteen. Which if you use numbers, then you know, it tells you you're at least sort of uh, forty five people down the list before you <laughs> before you get started. But but that whole that whole thing wasn't really me. I was actually, and again, a big part of my psyche, I suppose, is I see myself as a long distance runner. That was the sport I was good at. And I resonate with that. I was, I also ran for school long distance. It's not the coolest thing, <laughs> let's be honest. If you're doing a hundred meter sprint, yeah, you know, but um, doing 1500 or going cross country is not cool. But what it does do, if you're not into the academic side, Occasionally, you get a half a day off school to go and enter competition, which exactly. was fun. Exactly. Um, so you're in this very academic environment. You're not feeling it, but um, you're now CEO. You must have <laughs> smashed your A levels and done really well. How did that go? Well, not really. That's probably the best way of putting it. Or at least I didn't do as well as anybody thought I could or should have done. Uh, and uh, what did you get? Oh, great. I got a B in two Ds. So uh, very, very proudly. Um, and then I and then I retook the one of the D's and got a C. <laughs> oh, it's a small so, upgrade. Uh, but what's, so, what's yeah. your your mum and dad saying at this time? Because you said your mum's really keen for you to make something of yourself and carry the family on. What what are they thinking? Yeah, well, it's, I think you know I always remember my dad being really supportive uh, and positive when I got my results. And that was actually quite an early formative experience for me because I was expecting him to tear me off a proper strip um, and it was the first time I um, realised that he was going to support me um, to be me and to do whatever I wanted to do I think you know my mum was also supportive I, I should say but I think she was probably thinking you, you bloody pain in the <laughs> paid all this money and you need to be uh, getting better grades than that mate um, that's definitely, uh, uh, which is probably fair, but, but that's, you know, that's how it, how it felt, I guess. But the problem is, you know, none of it was any interest to me. I mean, I actually, I, I did economics as an A-level and that was the first time that anything at school had meant anything to me. I mean, it's hilarious now because I look at economics and think, well, it's, it's all, you know, most of it's theory. It's quite, you know, it's sort of, uh, comes at life from an angle that, you know, the economy and money drives everything which is not you know a fundamental belief i i i share i mean it's a key part of 
how the world goes around, obviously, but it's not the only part. Start uh, run Havas, that's for sure, but, but we'll get to that. But it was the only thing that resembled real life to me. And I happened to have a teacher uh, at that point, who the, the first and only teacher that really shaped my life in any way, who, uh, again, made it sound like real life, related to real life. And um, uh, and that had an impact on me as well. So, so yeah, so I realised that... Uh, um, you know, upon failing my A levels and and not doing as well in my retakes as I was allegedly supposed to do, uh, that uh, that I was barking up the wrong tree. I you know I'd applied to universities, to all these courses that everyone expected me to do. You know, economics and politics and this and that. I I I had no passion. I was sort of just going through the motions, and mm-hmm. so I just I decided to take a completely different path. Uh, I wanted to go and uh, do something that's going to be relevant. So I went and did a, a business degree. Uh, again, not surprising or original in this day and age, but I deliberately chose to go to a poly to do it instead of a university because the course was way more practical. In fact, uh, it's, I laugh now, but at the time they were very proud of the course because it was a BSc, not a you know BA. So it was it was coming at it from much more of a applied. Uh, perspective than a sort of um, philosophical one, I guess. I'm sure you enjoyed. You were about doing, you know, doing the work rather than the theory of it. It's true, and and um, and it was all relevant to real life because it was real life. Um, but also, uh, you got to start thinking about um, about different angles of it. So you spend time thinking about the ethics of the workplace, the ethics of business versus personal life and the psychology of how people uh, think and behave at work and, and how the brain contributes to that, um, how biology contributes to that. So all kinds of different angles on it, which, which um, because, again, because it was all related to something real, uh, all started to make sense to me. Um, and, uh, uh, and it happened to be in Manchester in the early 90s, so that helped. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's to be around Manchester. Then, yeah, exactly. Fun stories from Manchester. Manchester, none of that I can probably tell. But, uh, uh, the Hacienda, Hacienda was no longer any good by that point. Okay. I went a couple of times, but there were other clubs that are much better. But uh, spent a lot of my time in clubs, that is for sure. Um, and uh, uh, those are stories for uh, another podcast. <laughs> other Sam's nightlife related. Early eras. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's now known as Man Met. That's what it's yeah, now yeah. Known to. It changed halfway through me being there. I was a bit pissed. I, honestly, it's quite interesting because I was thinking, hold on a second, I've come, I've come here because it's a poly and because it's going to, you know, it's more vocational. Don't don't sort of just become another university. But mm. there you go. It works Same out. Your first job, assistant product manager at Boots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't start in agency world. You started managing... Cards, yeah, greetings cards. More specifically, uh, occasions and relations greetings cards. <laughs> that got you on the edge of your seats now, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so uh, at Boots, so yeah, I was a product buyer. So I wasn't, I wasn't even in the, you know, the the marketing communications department. Um, at, but it was fascinating because they sold. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll try and make it sound interesting to you for a minute, but they sold fifteen hundred different product lines of greetings cards in their biggest stores. Uh, and the profit margin is like eighty percent or something. So, so these, the, you know, they're, they're co- it's contributing disproportionately versus the, you know, the the shelf room to to um, to their revenues. And uh, 
And it was at the point where, this is how long ago it was, where they were moving from uh, manually merchandised stuff, like people coming in from the suppliers and putting their own cards on the shelves to to, uh, to digitally EPOS data being used to measure uh, the sales and then us choosing which cards uh, are stocked, but also where where and how they're displayed. So, so I had to sit there using one of those big mainframe computers with, you know, black, uh, you know, black screens with fluorescent green sort of <laughs> migraine inducing uh, text Matrix on them, style. Uh, yeah. trying to do data analysis uh, and, and you know, and so every single number on each barcode on the back of a card was telling you, right, what occasion is it? You know, is it a birthday? Is it a funeral? Is it a wedding? Is it, you know, this, that and the other? Has it got a teddy bear on it? Is the teddy bear facing you? It has, is it holding flowers? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so you could you could choose which elements you analysed, and uh, and in doing so, you could watch the sales transform through your own actions. It was actually an amazing uh, experience. Although, um, uh, again, uh, creatively stifling, I would say mm. I, the the most um, uh, definitely the most uh, individual way of uh, displaying your sort of. Uh, creativity or anything else to wear a disney tie which i refuse to submit to but i just recall the people that would thought they were a bit more interesting would would uh, use their ties to try and uh, communicate something about themselves and um uh i look back on that now and think if you've only ever worked in an agency you uh, uh you probably take for granted the fact that you exist in an environment where you can genuinely um be yourself mm. you know creatively stifling but but perhaps strategically stimulating as you're able to then see how those actions affect something else yeah t- yeah totally and i and i guess you know maybe maybe i'm being unfair because because there is there is creativity required to uh to analyze that data and think about how you're going to then use that to make different decisions uh i i suppose i, I maybe i mean more in in the sense of uh of uh, expressing that mm-hmm. personally and 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 then through through your you know through the work you then then create. I never, you know, maybe wrongly, never saw the, uh, you know, greetings cards with teddy bears on it as particularly uh, uh, natural extension of my own sort of uh, creative brain. But um, but there you go. Each to their own. Each to their own. I, I get what you mean there. Yeah. Then the world of advertising lands on your lap, or you mm. enter into it. You you go to Gray's, your first ad agency. Yeah, yeah. And important to say, I had done, like done summer like summer jobs working for a tiny little sort of print production company sort of around London where I would have to carry bromides from you know funnily enough I remember carrying bromides from the centre of uh, the West End all the way over to it's called Hoxton Zav uh, but don't worry it's it's okay but just make sure you walk straight from the tube back to the tube again and, and don't talk to anybody <laughs> sort of. so at the time when Hoxton was still proper old East End so yeah I would I, I'd done that and then and then um I was applying for for sort of new jobs and um uh and I just had an interview, I think it was at Dixon's. Um uh and I went to meet a friend from college, uh, and she was working for an agency. I'm not sure I really knew what agencies um did, but uh I went to meet her. I think she was running late, so I went and sat in their reception room for a bit and within five minutes I just, my eyes were just flicking about. It's just interesting people, a lot of movement, people wearing what they wanted, people were swearing and it was all right. That sounds ridiculous, but but this this um, sense of uh, freedom 
Mm -hmm. uh, and energy just oozed out of the place, even by just sitting in reception. And again, I think if you've only ever worked in nature, you might take that stuff for granted, but um, it couldn't have been more opposite to either the environment I've been in at Boots or, or you know, any of the, you know, other um, places I was going for interviews. So, uh, so, so no people wearing Disney ties trying to be different. There might have been somewhere, but I managed, uh, I managed not to encounter them. So, uh, so yeah. And I asked if there was a, I, I, I said, is there a job going like that evening? And she, and she said, funny enough that there, there is. Um, and so I went for it. And that was account manager? Account exec. Account exec. In fact, I think it might be trainee account exec. Nice. So, Start yeah. from the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Now you're here. How did you, how did you manage in those first days? Did, was there a way you clued yourself up? In my second week there, I decided I, I can't remember what I'd got passionate about. You might be able to find it somewhere in the, in, in, uh, Haymarket's, uh, sort of, uh, annals, but. I wrote a letter to to marketing magazine as it was then, and I showed it to my boss and said, "Are you all right if I write this letter to marketing?" And I think they must have looked at me and thought, "You're sort of two weeks in, and you want to write a letter to you know the the, the industry sort of magazine." Now, marketing was much more the clients' um, magazine, and campaign was the agency mm -hmm. one, and I I didn't really know about campaign, I suppose. So, anyway, I bloody well wrote it, and they published. Nice. So it was sort of next to the, you know, chief marketing officer from this brand and the, you know, MD of this agency and then trainee account except making a point about, I can't remember what, but, uh, so that, that, you know, I, I just set about trying to, um, make a nuisance of myself in a good way. I also overheard people going, oh God, mate, avoid, they do this sort of annual trip to the rugby with the clients, like make sure you don't get tapped up for that because you end up doing all the work. Um, and I thought, sounds like I'm going to get in front of a load of senior people. So mm. like, if no one else wants to do it, I sort of, sort of just started asking questions about it. Sort of didn't want to put, I, I never like put myself forward. I just thought I'd show that I was interested and sure enough, they probably realized they couldn't get anyone else to do it. And this bloke seemed interested. So he'll be easy picking. So, I, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, I got to organize that. And then of course at the last minute, someone pulled out. And then I got to go, so I got to I got to go with the CEO uh, and all the CMOs of all our clients to to some fancy rugby match that um, uh, that I wouldn't have got near for probably another ten years if I'd not mm. sort of put my oar in, I guess. So I just I just sort of tried a bit of that stuff, and then beyond, I mean, I like to imagine I worked hard, but actually. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I had no idea how to do any of it. And I actually got really badly pulled up quite rightly because I used to go into me meetings, um, not write any notes and then come out and try to re try and remember what was good. Someone pulled me aside once and went, what just, you know, what happened in that meeting and tell me what, and I couldn't, I couldn't, um, answer it properly. And as a result, it was pretty clear to me and to my boss, that I wasn't doing my job properly. Um, and, uh, and so. My life's full of little comeuppances like that. Um, not because I, you know, not not for any reason, and I didn't probably realise that's what I should be doing, or probably didn't even realise it was my job to take the notes. But but yeah, so I sort of, in some ways, uh, ingratiated myself. Uh, in other ways, made myself look like I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, you sort of 
find your own way, find some ways of uh, of uh, showing people you care and you're passionate, um, make loads of mistakes. Uh, I think the most important thing is when you make mistakes, someone picks you up is not to think that um, you know any better. Um, I think that's probably the thing that stood me in good stead. I was always very down to earth. You know, I remember my, you know, my first my first job, which no longer makes my CV, but did for a long time, was working in in McDonald's, where I got no stars um, because I was so worried that you had to actually take a test to get a star, and I was so worried that I would fail it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to take the test. But I remember going in there, think thinking, "All oh, right, I'm going to." try and sort of make my way here really quickly and then then I got flipping burgers and I was so f***ed at it it was, it was a, it's a learnt art and this guy next to me who I thought wasn't going to be able to teach me anything um was able to teach me a whole ton of stuff and he and I it was stuff I needed to learn really fast if I wasn't going to lose this job and you know that combined with my you know with my upbringing really um moment I went into the workplace being very grounded and and knowing I didn't really know much uh still making a ton of mistakes but making sure that when I made them I really bloody listened mm. well, that attitude obviously worked for you because you joined Gray in, in 96 and then you moved to BBH um and you get to account director so things you're doing the right things you're obviously taking on board feedback not getting in a hump about it and going okay yeah probably should take some notes in this meeting and um you you rise and rise and it's during your time at bbh that you have children and you're what 26 27 at this point yeah 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 it's quite young isn't it yeah, it was quite it it uh even now i look back and think crikey that that's young i suppose at the time it all just happens to you right so so i met my wife at at work in fact at, at gray so uh, i was the account exec she was the account director um that um what that was not a very um i mean there's a story in that in itself because uh you know at first it's all sort of uh under wraps no one's talking about it and then we decided uh i sort of went from my mates all sort of uh being impressed that i was going out with my boss to uh, to going, oh, don't talk about it like that. Excuse me, it's a serious relationship. And uh, and so when and when we decided it was a serious relationship, we decided we should tell people at work. And my wife got an absolute um, uh, bee sting off her bosses. You know, she was told uh, she would not be taken seriously. She was told that um, uh, it would undermine all the good work she was doing, etc., uh, etc. Et now. Um, did you know this at the time yeah 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 we were yeah we we were going through it together right and you know her response quite rightly was was uh that doesn't necessarily seem to be the way it works for blokes around here they seem to be quite freely able to uh uh, uh not necessarily even go out with um uh women who are half their age and that's perfectly accepted by everybody so so again, I learned quite early in my career that there were that there there was discrimination um, rife all over the place, uh, and, uh, and and that was often perpetuated by it by you know in this instance by lots of the senior women, um, and and that's another really important learning. A lot of discrimination it can be perpetuated by the people who, uh, you know, same kind of people are being discriminated against. Mm. And how long did you get off when when you know your kids are being born? 
how much time did you get to on paternity leave? Two weeks. Uh, two, <laughs> two weeks. Obviously, the first half of or first week of that's. Uh, I learned isn't that useful because your mother-in-law's around trying to sort of uh, uh, quite rightly busy herself. So, um, uh, so the truth of it is, you sort of get you sort of get a week with your with your new new kid, and you're back to work. Uh, was that tough? It wasn't tough because it was life, right? L- you know, my wife had three months um, maternity leave, and I had two weeks off, um, and that was that was the way it was. I look back now and realise how fundamentally that shaped both of our lives and careers, my wife and my career. You, um, when you're in that position, oh, sorry, let me speak personally, when we were in that position, when I was in that position, you make decisions um, about who's going to stay at home to look after the kids based on how much money you've got and the amount of money you've got depends entirely whether the woman stays at home or the bloke stays at home because if the bloke stays at home you get two weeks pay uh, and if the uh, woman stays at home you get the th- the three or six months um, and and of course the legal entitlements take a, a year off I wouldn't even have been allowed to keep my job and take a year off so so um, and we'll come back to what's interesting about this is you've got some quite unique paternity you know initiatives mm. at Havas, which you implemented. We're going to get to that. Yeah, we'll get to but that. It's all yeah. all uh, relevant. And then you um you have two children in quite quick succession. How yeah. how long between? A year and three days. A year, a year and three and days. days. So so uh, yeah, my eldest was born in two thousand uh, in Ju- in July, and then swiftly, a year and three days later, my um, second daughter was born. So your experience is, <laughs> you have two weeks off when they're born. And you come back to work, and everyone goes, well done, mate, congrats. Right, now we've got this project, and you get straight back into yeah, things, exactly. pretty much. What was it like for your wife, from what you saw? Let's start with what it's like for, from, you know, for her and for me, for, you know, because I'm coming back so quickly, right? So first of all, she's left straight, straight, straight on our own. Second of all, um, uh, and, you know, this is a very entitled male uh sort of first story right but you have the privilege of not having to learn or deal with any of what's going on at home so actually one reflection is and my wife would be quick to support me I was a terrible husband and father in that period because I didn't have to do it and you learn you, you learn to do it sort of each evening when you got home for a bit and then for a day or two at the weekend but I was going to the football or playing football, you know, one of those days each weekend. So I was doing it a day a week. And uh, and because that's normalised, you sort of, you know, that you just slip into it. Um, so it was only really when, uh, you know, I sort of once we'd had my second daughter that I realised uh, my life uh, needed to, re- I needed to reshape my life so that I could be a better parent but I and you're learning all this at the age of 27 as well right yeah 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 you're still young yeah I was and it was funny because I the weird you know what you know wife was older than me so so you know the the decision to have kids was you know felt natural for both both of us for that reason but yeah I was the only one of my age having um uh, kids at that point and 
I didn't mind though. You know what? The fu- the funny thing about that was, first of all, it's sort of the age my parents had had kids. So I, you know, at that point in time, you're sort of using that as a reference point as much as anything else. And second of all, um, I was always trying to appear at work as though, as though I was older than I was or more senior than I was so that I could get get on. Mm-hmm. And um, I looked, I think I looked quite young. Uh, I was more, se- you know, I was an account director at the age of 23 or 24 or whatever, which is, you know, exceptionally young to be an account director. And I was looking for ways to demonstrate that I was, I was uh, to be uh, respected and, and taken seriously. And that's not why we had kids for sure. But, um, but it's very true that when you walk into a room and tell people you've got two, two kids, they tend to think you're older than 27. <laughs> Uh, these even then, and particularly these days. So, um, so my wife had a really poor experience when she went back to work, um, particularly after our first child, and said, you know, quite quickly that that she was um, pregnant again. She was ostracised. She was physically moved onto a desk away from the rest of the team and given different work to do. Why? because she was only going to be around again for another six or seven months. Now, that, you know, that was uh, bizarre to me. And I, I remember at the time being appalled, And but she didn't, you know, very typical of my, um, my missus, she didn't want to make a fuss of it. Um, and then when she came back after our second child, the same sort of thing happened. So, so again, I watched very clearly uh, the world behave in a way and the industry behave in a way uh, that um, valued uh, women's contribution differently from men's and women's contribution when they had children very differently than before they had children uh, and it made me really angry. So we'll, we'll get to, as I said, we'll get to what you, you do about that now. Back onto the, 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 your pathway to CEO, mm. you uh, moved to Wonderman. As an account direct, yeah, in two thousand one, yeah. and this isn't. I think it was senior account director. That was very important to me at the time. Let's make yeah, that same difference. That's very important. <laughs> senior account director, and um, you you get to a bit of a. You're, I mean, you're finding out who you are in this world and who you want to be and what character you are. You're still late twenties, and you sort of seem to hit this this crossroads moment where you get you get some feedback from someone again someone tells you pulls you up and says something to you and it seems to shape the next direction of your what's really forms your leadership style which is unique you talk about yourself now as not an alpha type character and you sort of start this psychological experiment almost on yourself tell us about what happens well the psychological experiment started probably earlier than that I kind of I always thought I wanted my boss's job but I never thought I could do it the way they did it and therefore I always doubted whether I could do it at all I'd watch that my bosses and think oh the way that you're able to be really sort of um, aggressive or assertive uh, and not care about how people feel about that I'm really bad I'm bad at that like the way the way you're able to um uh to hold a room the way you're able to do all kinds of things i'd look at it and go oh, bl- blimey you know the way p- you, people were super organized and and uh that was their real strength i can't you know i i 
had to work I realized that being organized was really important I actually worked hard at that because I knew it wasn't my my natural strength but I just I just looked at these people and I looked at the way that that a lot of my bosses were behaving not all it's important to say but a lot of my bosses were behaving and a lot of people who were not necessarily my boss but you know were more senior than me and I sort of thought you're not really like me but actually most of the time I thought that meant I wasn't ever going to be able to do their jobs. And then as I did start to get promoted, I thought, oh, do you know what? Maybe I could do their jobs, but I just don't want to do it the way they do it. And uh, by the way, I, I post-rationalising, I think so, somehow I thought, uh, I, I, so I basically got to a point where I said, right, I wonder if I could actually become the MD of an agency without being a d-. I mean, I remember thinking that right back at BBH when I was an account director. It's your think, early 20s at that point. Well, mid, yeah, sort of, uh, yeah, mid to late 20s, I suppose. So, yeah, 20, 26, maybe, 27, maybe. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be like that. I, but the thing is, I was probably thinking it because I knew I couldn't be like that. At that point, I was thinking, um, maybe subconsciously, this might be your excuse for not getting there. Mm-hmm. If you try to not be a d- at least if you don't get there, you'll, have, you'll be able to fall back on the fact that you've not been an absolute d- in the process. Um, so I definitely thought that very early on. I, I, I still then, you know, then I went off to Wonderman. That was interesting because when I resigned from BBH to go to Wonderman, I think they all thought I was mad. Um, I, I got I got a 40% pay rise at a point from when I'd gone from having no kids to two kids. And everyone thought, why are you going to direct marketing agency having worked at, the, you know, BBH was still the, the most um, awarded, respected, um, renowned agencies making the best work in the world. And the truth is, I went because I needed the money. Uh, mm. And I was unashamed that my family was the most important thing at that point. And, yeah. um, and that's interesting because a lot of advice you get is, no, 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 don't make those kind of decisions. But I always think it's important to look at the whole context uh, uh, that you, within which you're making a decision. And the, my context was I needed a, ha- a house, not a flat. And, um, and I didn't have enough money. And what were you on at BBH and then what did you get at Wonderman? Uh, so, uh, it's a lot. I mean, this is 25 years ago, probably more, mate. So I was probably on 35 grand mm. at BBH. And then you stepped up quite, to... maybe not quite. Well, you work it out, got 40% pay rise. So, no. so we'll talk about we'll around that. To do that. Probably a bit more then. But well, yeah, anyway, so. So look, I'm, I I got a good step up, and actually thinking about it, yeah, probably it was yeah it was maybe forty five percent pay rise. So, so look, I I uh, ended up at Wonderman, and actually I only spent eighteen months there. I then went to an agency called Archibald Ingle Stratton because some of the founders there I'd worked with at BBH, and that was my first lesson, which is um, make as few enemies as possible, uh, and and always do a good job because you don't know where anything's going to end up and these people yeah. phoned me up and says right we're you know c- come back and work with us at the new agency we've set up so uh so I, I did that and then it was I cycled through a couple of other agencies after AIS and got to a place called Clayton Healy uh, and that's where this very sort of life um changing conversation happened and and I'd been on gardening leave for three months before I got there and so during that time I'd decided I was going to read lots of books on the industry I'd never I'd never done that before I wasn't really a big reader I I I had you know I'd got a deputy managing director job title and I thought I would need to be serious and I'm going to read some books and so I did and and then I had three months off 
which was a real opportunity to overthink the f out of everything. Uh, and I arrived into the, f the first meeting I had, it was actually, I remember it was a week before I, w I was due to formally start. I snuck in for a, um, for a meeting uh, with a potential new client and the meeting didn't go well we didn't get through it was a chemistry meeting for pitch we didn't get through to the pitch stage mm. i then start the job the next week not feeling a bit funny because of course my first the first meeting uh the meeting hadn't gone well overall and i i was pretty sure i hadn't given myself the best performance but of course you just hope nobody else noticed <laughs> and that actually you're just beating yourself up about it and about three weeks in my boss said to me a guy called mike mike welsh um my boss, uh, Mike, said to me, how did you think that meeting went? And I, I said, which meeting? He said, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the chemistry meeting the other week. Uh, and I said, well, I thought we weren't very good. And I thought I wasn't very good. I, I was nervous and I was a bit rough around the edges, hadn't been working for three months. And so, yeah, I think I balls it up. And he said, um, yeah, you're right, you did. Um, but the thing is, I didn't recognise the person in that meeting that I'd met when I interviewed you. You know, when we and, and we'd had a really interesting interview process. We probably spent three or four hours chatting, and uh, over a couple of meetings. And uh, and he he said um, that wasn't who I hired. I hired, and then he rolled through a load of descriptions about me and how I'd been in those conversations. That was a real um, sharp uh, moment for me, and I still remember it very, very vividly because nobody had ever spoken to me about the way I did what I did. They'd mm. just described the role almost in a contained way that meant everybody to be good at that role and to do it in the same way as it was written yeah. down on a job description. He didn't describe any of the things you did. He just described me. And the way that meant I went about stuff. And it's the first time I ever thought someone had hired me because of who I was rather than because of the agencies I'd been lucky enough to work at or the brands I'd happened to be near when they happened to do some good work that I might have been partially involved in. And that changed everything for me because I, for the first time, felt confident that the way I was doing stuff was good. I also realised I was the way I was doing stuff was different from the way most other people were doing stuff as well. And that was in regards to just not being this alpha leader, I'm the boss type character. You, you were, What was your style? What were you doing? I mean, I think I'm a bit more laid back and a bit more natural in conversation. I'm down to earth. Uh, I swear a bit. Uh, I stutter a bit. I sometimes pause because I can't think of what the right word is, but I'm really passionate. Uh, I've always got a point of view. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think I really realised almost in a moment that those things were of value. Mm. Whereas I'd spent the rest of my career thinking those were the reasons why I wasn't going to get on. Interesting. Well, yeah, I think there's a lesson there for everyone listening, watching around that. Yeah, look at look at what your look at what your skills are, and even speak to other people about what they see in you, because in that you can unlock a lot more perspective on you know what people benefit 
massively and also to to leaders mm. um if you are managing somebody uh talk to them about the way they're doing stuff not just about what they're doing mm. uh, uh and when you're giving them feedback that's positive talk about their, their style not just the thing they did yeah. um i you know i now always ask you know in you know in interviews you know how would you describe your own personal style <laughs> uh, it's amazing how often it throws people because that you don't you know you're not encouraged to think about the fact there's a million different ways to get the same job done but there are and in the end you can only be any good at it your way mm. otherwise you're just pretending to do it the way you think someone else should do it would you say that perspective has led you to see more around the humans that you're hiring or working with as opposed to their roles and i mean the roles are important but you know the human is always behind the role right i mean our product in agencies is our people i mean we don't have anything else you're not making uh, a you know a widget or a you know or a, you know, a car or a, a product that goes out the other end you, you know the ideas our people have the strategies our people write that is what we're selling. That is what clients pay us for. So your people are it. Therefore, the job of leading a team from one people up to, you know, however many thousand people you might end up leading is about understanding the human behind that because it's only in understanding them you can get them to do their very best work. Mm -hmm. So this approach of being who you are, being yourself, is, is working for you. DDB one of the you know most respected successful agencies um this is 2010 they select you to be managing partner how does that come about what's the story there yeah that came about be because because uh, Cl so clayton healy was part of omnicom and uh and clayton healy was a smallish agency but um they were very good to me they spotted um my ambition and the fact that I was good and they how did uh, they know you had this ambition what were you doing to show them you had it I don't I mean you'd have to you'd have to ask them I think uh, I always say this to people in the end actually the most important thing is is that you care about what you do if you really care about what you do you will try as hard as you can to do it well and you will uh, try and learn how to do it better so I always cared. And again, I think that comes right back to the work ethic thing. Um, I I always worried I was, I, I still worry. I always worried that I was going to lose my job. I always knew that was a bad thing. I was always worried about whether I'd have enough money. Um, but I also was lucky to fall into a, fall in, I, I didn't fall in. I was lucky to have carved a career for myself in an industry that I loved. Um, and it's not very cool to say you love advertising in an advertising agency, sadly, but I love this world. I love advertising. I think at its best, it's incredible. Uh, and it's such brilliant, amazing fun and it's rewarding and it, it's um, stimulating. And so, so I think probably back to your question, people notice that. Uh, and by this point, of course, I've had this amazing bit of advice from Mike uh, to say, by the way, it's you we bought, not an account director or business director who'd worked at these agencies on these accounts. I always made sure I was very close to clients, So, uh, by which I mean, I don't mean to them individually, I mean, 
I knew what was going on. I was involved in the work. No matter how senior I have become, I still get involved uh, and know the client's business and uh, work in the agency on projects. Uh, so I, so all of that, I, but they, 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 ch they sent me on the Omnicom Senior Management Programme and there I met some people who were at DDB. Um, I'd got this unusual CV where I'd worked mostly in direct marketing agencies, but a bit in advertising agencies, which for a long time cast me as a sort of jack of all trades, master of none, but was starting by 2010 to become um, a uh, valuable and rare commodity, I suppose. Um, the advertising agency world was still full of people that only ever worked in advertising agencies. They'd gone there as graduates um, and they had stayed either in the one agency they were at or they'd moved about other agencies. And I remember um, interviewing for eight agencies and being told I wasn't going to get through to interview because I wasn't currently at an advertising agency. So, but by this point, DDB have, uh, you know, woken up like a lot of the big networks and realized direct marketing agencies, digital agencies are starting to steal their breakfast. And so they're looking for people like me. And I've been on the Omnicom senior management program where, where I've met some, you know, people who have become really important in my life. Lucy Jameson at, um, at uh, Uncommon, she is now, um, I, she was on my year at uh, Omnicom senior management program and we struck it off straight away. Uh, and I was lucky because she, but also three or four other people, um, uh, had all either worked with me or or knew me, and so uh, so that so that's how I got an interview. I remember being really f***ed off because not, that job had been uh, open for a while. I think that they came to me because they couldn't find the right person. That job had been with the um, recruitment consultants, some of whom I knew and knew me, and would to try and get me jobs for months and none of them thought I was right for that job they'd put other people forward so um so yeah so I is that because do you think they had this view that you had before where oh well you should be this certain type of character and you weren't I've no idea I've no idea why uh and nor and frankly nor do I care now uh -huh. I'm sort of lucky to be able to say that but um but it's an important part of the story right which is which is I, um, I was not considered top candidate fodder for that role. Uh, what happened was because I'd worked with people uh, who happened to be at DDB by then, uh, I got to the interview and I was like, oh, uh, why, you know, so why me? And, um, and he, he said, well, every bloody person I spoke to about the fact we can't find anyone for this role here at DDB kept mentioning your name. And uh, and so again, there's a lesson, which is in. I mean, I do believe in the end, you you sort of earn. You know, you have to be, you have to. Luck plays a part. Uh, you have to do your best to make sure that you're in a position to capitalise on the luck. Um, so those two things have to come together, and they have done regularly in in my life. So so I I, I don't pretend that I've earned all this myself. Some of it has been luck. But you carve out the right to be one of the people that gets thought about when that when those moments come your way. Mm -hmm. Something that's come a lot up a lot doing these these episodes has been that if you're someone who people enjoy spending time with and enjoy working with, mm. and you're someone people want around, that can go a long, long way. I was at, um, again at Clayton Healy. I went through this 
uh, excruciating experience when they decided they were going to invest in me. Did an amazing thing, which was uh, um, uh, the 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 guy who the chief talent officer um, that he was working like a day or two a week. But he was amazing, and he I think he used to run all of Mars's. He was chief people officer for Mars or something. He was sort of semi-retired. Anyway, he said, right, what we're going to do is I'm going to interview the whole agency, by which he sort of meant half the agency, but they interviewed 30 or 40 people to ask them what their experience of working with me was like, which was excruciating in terms of, you know, I felt nervous and anxious when it was going on, and then we sat down for him to give me the feedback, and he said, right, the first and most important thing is um, everybody really likes you. And I, I remember that bit in that one moment becoming totally deflated and then I said are you kidding me if that's the best if that's your leading statement I'm screwed are you an agency or brand that would like to work with our production company unity and motion if so contact us at unityandmotion.com we produce commercials and social content for brands such as Chanel Amazon Reebok Harrods, The Ritz, and many more. Now back to the show. And he said, no, 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 uh, that's the most important thing because uh, if people don't want to follow you, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how good you are, um, you won't get anywhere. Uh, and he said the, the thing that um, is coming through is people uh, want to be around you and enjoy being around you. And if you set a direction, they're quite into, they're predisposed to want to, get amongst it with you so you oh well actually this links back to the story we had with Stephen Woodford so he was CEO at the time at DDB were you there yeah he's been on the show if you haven't listened to the episode you can find (laughs) it Stephen Woodford Um, and they buy Adam and Eve which is you know agency on the up flying doing great and so the two companies merge and you're made Group managing director of Adam and Eve DDB. Not initially, so 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 there's a story to go with it. I'll I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell some of the story. I'd actually resigned from DDB, so I'd been there eighteen months, oh. um, and uh, and I'd resigned from DDB. Be- Why? But, uh, because we'd lost a couple of big accounts, including the one I I was leading. Um, but I was offered a job to go and work at the agency that that account had gone to uh, and I actually resigned and um, and then there was this weird m- moment where DDB was in this sort of um, uh, lull people knew something was going to change didn't know what and and then the Adam and Eve merger happened and and Stephen Woodford had said to me when I resigned look just hang in there hang in there and uh, and I said sure but I can't hang in there forever and I've been offered this job so I'm going to take take it and uh, so I resigned and I did two months of my notice then the Adam and Eve merger happened and then um, James Murphy uh, called me up the night we the night the board at DDB had been told about the merger and, and James Murphy is uh, he's the founder of Ad- Adam and Eve uh, he now he now um, he fa- went on to found new commercial arts so uh, called me up and said, I hear you're leaving and you're one of the people who shouldn't be. Um, meet me tomorrow morning in the basement of Pret-a-Manger uh, in Covent Garden, which is, uh, well, Murphy will proudly say is uh, is uh, exactly uh, his style. Um, 
and we chatted and and he he um he said i want you to stay with us i said this you know they've offered me this um that's important money for me and my family right. we went through i'm not going to tell you um uh we went um uh we went and carried on talking and it ended up with me telling the agency i was going to go to who shall remain nameless um but telling them with a week to go before i was due to join to run one of their biggest accounts that i wasn't joining oh um is that hard so, to do yeah that was one of the most frightening moments of my career making that phone call and the and the person, what are you scared of uh it it felt really, really counter to my principles. I didn't like the. F I, I knew I was letting them down. I knew they would be angry. I sort of understood that they'd be. Ang they had good reason to be angry. Um, my dad gave me some really good advice though when I was really tearing my hair out about the decision. He said, you know, but we've sort of mentioned this already in another way. But he said, you can't expect them to not be angry, but equally your context has totally changed when you took that job the adam and eve merger hadn't happened and now you're sitting uh, you know in front of a, a a totally different set of decisions you've got to now decide whether you want that job or the one you're about to go to so my context changed massively um and uh, and i made a difficult decision to stay or rejoin so i i I'd had my I'd had my leaving due. Oh, oh wow! I was left the agency and then I walked back in a week later. So I think I'd taken a week <laughs> off before I was due to join. So I walked back into um, an agency uh, called Adam and Eve DDB on day one. Um, Everyone thought, "Oh no, he's he's got he's lost his memory." <laughs> yeah. No, no. Can you so imagine how weird that you is. Don't that work was, here anymore. It was so weird. It felt like the oddest thing ever. Yeah. Anyway. So that is, um, uh, and then I was, and then I was a managing partner for a couple of years before I was then promoted to group managing director. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you get up to group managing director, mm. and we're now at the point where, um, twenty sixteen, the the step up to CEO. Yeah, yeah. Which is what we're really interested about mm. is, is is that that step up? You know, for anybody listening who is in a director role or head of role or a managing director and wants to make that transition, let's hear from you how it played out. I love asking this question. Did Havas give you a call one down and go, day and go, hey, Zav, fancy being CEO, or did you see it in the local corner shop on a, <laughs> I don't know, but how does how does it happen? So I, so I was called up by Headhunter. Okay. Um, who was putting together a list. Uh, and, and what was the role they were looking for at this point? CEO of Havas London. And you've never been a CEO before. You've never been C-suite before. N uh, yeah, well, I think the the, the language of C-suite is misguided these days. I, you know, I, as the group manager director at, at Adam and Eve DDB, I was sat as you know a group of seven or eight of us who were really running the agency. So, but yeah, I'd never had a C in my title, right? Mm. Uh, except for when I was an account person for many years but um or in uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. so um no i'd never been a ceo before uh i had uh you know i think it is a different role 
and it is more lonely. You learn that quite quickly. Uh, it is also not nearly as much of a step up as you think or as out of your reach as you might think. Uh, I think I think particularly if you've come through a uh, the route of being an account management person, you know, in an agency, you will have had a lot of experience of leading teams. And this is just the next step in, in that in some ways. I think the, the biggest difference for me is you're suddenly standing there and you're, even within a network, I'm blessed because Havas really gives, you know, and has given me an enormous amount of autonomy to lead a, the company the way I want to. And, you know, that's, again, you know, I've, I'm not sure it's unique to Havas, but that is... That's been a real different experience for me than working for lots of other networks. So so I was given this autonomy. And so you stand there and you realize, and suddenly you go, oh my God, so I've got these tens of millions of pounds of revenue sort of coming through the organization. Um, and there was a, it dawned on me that you could sort of choose to just, you know, allocate it to profit and then that goes to back to um, Global HQ and in the end back to shareholders. Um, or you can look at it through another lens, which is, well, we'll do all that, but actually while it's traveling through our world, what impact can we have, uh, while we're at it? Sort of in the same way as when you're making an ad, right? You can say, well, I'm just going to make an ad that delivers the message that we've been asked to, or I can try and make it the most impactful ad we've created and an ad that is remembered and has an impact on society and culture um not just an ad that um that does the bare minimum of what the brief required and so if you've got that about you and you've spent your life trying to do that for your clients and and in with with the advertising you're creating with them um actually it wasn't a massive leap to then go oh hold on a second you know that we could do something interesting here. So we'll talk so we, about so we did. We'll talk about everything you did, all the interesting things did. But going back to the story, yeah. the recruiter gives you a call or yeah. drops you an email and <laughs> says, "What?" Yeah, I remember. I was on the way to. So, uh, I was on the way to a meeting o over in Wolfsburg, a global Volkswagen meeting, and this will have been about two months after you know the whole Volkswagen scandal happened uh, emission um yeah and we had been right at the heart of writing you know writing a new ad every day to to you know hit the press to make sure that we manage that situation um and so i was i was on i was at heathrow and i got a phone call from a headhunter that I, you know that i'd sort of known on and off uh saying uh how about have us <laughs> and um what was your first reaction i laughed i remember laughing <laughs> <laughs> um and i uh, chris hurst who um was the European CEO at that point, sort of been in the role about six or nine months or something. So I'd worked with him a long time ago at, at BBH. Um, uh, but there's a good lesson here, which is he rightly, um, he, even though he had, I mean, the other thing I said is he's got my bloody mobile number. He could have just phoned me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's really important to go through a proper recruitment process rather than, rather than just think about the people you know. So I was on a list alongside people um how long was the list you know i've no idea how long the list was but i um uh but um 
but I, I suppose my point is, is, is it's important to properly construct it and probably partner with somebody to construct it, whether they be internally or externally, to make sure that you uh, are learning from other people's perspective on the industry rather than just relying on your own. Um, so, you, so you laughed and then obviously said, yeah, okay. I said, I'll, I'll meet for coffee just, you know, because it's Chris and Chris and I, you know, talked about working with each other at different points, but you sort of um, prior to that. Um, at this point, have you got big ambitions with, with Adam and Eve DDB though? Yes. I, well, I, I f- probably feel that I, Adam and Eve DDB, so I was the only person really at the heart of that leadership team that wasn't a founder. Um, and, and we were still in earnout, and I didn't have any money in that earnout, um, which is fine. Uh, and, uh, so I was, I think the best way to describe it was I was ambitious to, to lead a company. Uh, and I made a judgment that have us, um, uh, but once I got talking and, and, uh, and Chris and others, made extremely good and persuasive arguments for why this would be a good move for me uh which all turned out to be absolutely correct i made a judgment that um that this was the this was the moment and you know it's interesting isn't it because you know i'd had lots of other calls where i'd sort of said no um and in that moment um you have to make a decision and it's not without risk Mm -hmm. i mean adam and eve we we had just won back-to-back campaign agency of the year, can agency of the year, um, uh, and we were making, you know, I was making the best work of my career. We were making the best work in, in the world. Um, and then you have to make a decision like that. So so um, you have to step into the unknown. You, there's no data points that mm. can help you. You've just got to follow your gut and you've got to decide whether... Um, you think it's going to work out for you. Well, you don't know. You don't know. So you, you do follow your gut. You, you, you get through the interview process and what happens? They say, yeah, we want you. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was a good rigorous process. I'd, I got had to meet quite a few people. You know, most importantly, I had to meet several people that I'd either be, you know, working alongside or were working would be working for me. Um, which again is super useful, but you know, so for, you know, I had to meet the ECDs who were going to report to me, but you know, it was such a key partnership, um, you know, the, as in the executive creative directors. So I had to meet the chief strategy officer, um, who would be my, you know, my partner and, uh, and that was good for two reasons. One, um, I think it's good to be judged by the people that are going to work for you, not just the people that you're going to work for and I think it's good uh well sorry I think it's essential that you feel there's going to be chemistry between you and the people you're going to be in a team with yeah um it it all um lives or dies on that connection Mm -hmm. and for for someone who you know is looking to be in that that role in the future what would you say the what would you say the things that they could brush up on to be ready for that kind of position to be ready for the position, I mean, so I think I, I suppose I think this is where the where I think what you're doing is great because telling the whole story, 
is the answer to that question. Mm. I don't think there's a moment where you, you sit as the group managing director of a company and think, whoa, what am I going to brush up on to be able to have this conversation? Now, but again, back to some of the things we've, we've already talked about, you've got to go in as yourself. Mm. Um, partly because if that's not good enough, then then um, it's not going to be good for you, let alone them. Uh, I th I think what you have got to... I mean, you've got to do what you always do for an interview, right? Which you've got to uh, research inside out the company that you're thinking about working for. You've got to have a point of view on the work they're doing. You've got to have a point of view on where you think you could take them. You've got to have a point of view on um, why you think you might be an interesting person to talk to about the role and why you think you might be able to do it. So it's, it's about selling yourself, but it's also about reflecting on all those things so that you can make a decision about whether you're ready for it and whether you uh, think you're going to be able to do it well. I think the minute you feel like you're selling yourself but you don't believe what you're selling, then, you know, I think I think that's a tricky place to be in. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have to, you have to sort of prepare yourself and in preparing yourself, um, ask yourself some questions about whether you think you can do this. And so you, you start, you start your role and it's, you know, first time being CEO, probably, you know, don't want to mess it up. Yeah. Want to do a good job. <laughs> you know, if you mess it up or who's going to, if you get fired in the first few months, yeah, yeah. who's going to hire you as a CEO again? All this pressure going on, you know, a lot of people to, to manage all lots of new things. All the while, you've got um, this situation at home going on. Mm. Can you share what was happening with yeah. your family yeah. at that time? Um well, let's parallel run two things. First, th first thing is, yeah, so you find yourself in this role. And yet again, foolishly, I decided to read a book while I was on gardening leave, you know, how to be a CEO. And what it literally called that? Uh, CEO for dummies? Uh, it was, it's an FT business book. I can't remember what it, it was. It was literally something like CEO. Uh, and um, uh, I, I, I'll give you a review of it, which is, it was kind of interesting because it helps you realize that most of what it said probably wasn't right for me but you know maybe maybe so I wouldn't have got there unless I'd read it and had something to contrast it with but one of the things it says don't you know just observe and and learn and and uh don't make assumptions too quickly but and, and therefore don't make any big decisions for 100 days and if within 30 days I knew several of the things that I wanted to do um so 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 that's going on and then also within 30 days my daughter so I have three daughters by this point uh, who are um, so in 2016? They're all in their teens. Uh, my youngest is about to hit her; we're about to be 30. And my middle daughter um, was diagnosed as autistic when she was eight or nine, uh, and she was already starting to become quite uh, mentally unwell when I. Uh, when I was in my, when I'd already resigned from Adam and Eve and, and was um, working my notice. But she, uh, she got much worse during that period. And four weeks into joining Habas, she was admitted to a psychiatric unit as an inpatient. Uh, and what does that mean for people who don't know? Um, well, that means she goes to live in a hospital um, in, for, in all, you know, main, mainly for her own safety um, be, uh, but also so that they can begin the process of understanding 
what's wrong with her and how to um, get her well again. So, um, and how are you feeling at this time? Yeah. Well, again, it's all just happening to you, right? So I think that one of the it's easy to reflect now, but at the time, a lot of stuff's happening to you, and you don't know how to process it. So, you know, you know, you know, one of the things that's happening is you're worried about you, you know, your daughter's life, and um, and so you're not thinking about um, work as a first priority. Uh, but then when you do think about work, the first thing I started thinking was, oh my God, I, why have I left Adam and Eve? Um, they, they would have, um, looked after me. I'd been there six, seven years. Uh, I don't, why am I taking on a big new job now? I'm not going to be able to do it. There were big moments. I would have to leave the office at short notice. Um, I remember leaving a pitch during the Q and A at the end before, before the, meeting had finished and And you're the new ceo yeah i'm sort of yeah probably six eight weeks in by maybe who knows two or three months in by the point that i'm leaving a pitch um during the the q a my pa sort of knocks on the window and kind of make make you know makes it clear that i even though it's a pitch i need to leave but then you're also getting phone calls in the morning from the hospital telling you things that you you know don't you know that are tough to handle so i remember you know um i remember being physically sick in the gutter on my way to the office um and then but there's nothing you can do why were you sick because of some news i'd just received from the hospital and and um and then so you're sick because you're so because it because you're worried and because you're just being told shocking things um and uh, and then I think, well, and there's you, you there's you're not wanted at the hospital. It's not useful for you to be there. You mm-hmm. just know these things are happening. And um, so the first thing I had to do is call my wife to tell her the thing that I'd been told. And then the second thing I had to do was work out whether or what I was going to do next. And so I walked into work. And and it's funny, but um, yeah, you sort sort of this is this is a few months on by this time so we have us have just we just got into the new building in in king's cross where we where we are now and that we've got some big doors at the at the front of the building and and i don't do it anymore but i recall for a couple of years arriving at those doors then physically doing this and then walking through the doors to try and deal with and not separate what was going on at home versus at, at work so and what's going on there when you're taking in that breath what's, what's um you it? i think you're just uh trying to summon the ability to um to have these two things going on at the same time and to yeah. focus on one thing um as well as knowing the other thing's going to need some focus at some point but you have to be able to switch between the two and that was it. You have to be able to switch between. I mean, you you, co- you in the end you coexist. And I made a decision really quickly to. Um, I'd never been very um, vocal about what was going on in in my personal life uh, at work, but I made a decision that I was going to be completely open with everybody about everything from that point on. So I, I remember sending a note to my you know my tight team and my boss saying, "What well, this is what's going on," um, and um, and and then I was 
you know, I, I remained open about it. So I let them know what was going on so that... Was it nervous for us to send on that email to everybody, letting them know? Did you have doubts? Not as n- nerve-wracking as it would have been if the one thing hadn't happened before it, which is um, uh, having having been given an amazing private health plan by, you know, by Havas when I walked in, uh, you, I quickly found out that, you know, if you if you have uh, a requirement to be in hospital, uh, you know, um, with a psychiatric um, diagnosis, then your health insurance only pays for a month in hospital. Uh-huh. So that's fine if you only need to be, but what if you're not better in a month? Um, and... She, uh, so I had to go I went to the woman who ran the HR department and said look is there another level of this health plan I can get onto so that I can have longer and also is there a is there a you know I don't mind paying a bit but how could we make all of that work and uh, she came back to me and said this is like three or four weeks into my new job she came back and said there is no higher level that's not how it works but we've deposited this much money with the health insurance provider to make sure that you can have three months. Wow. Um, and uh, so in the grand scheme of things, that wasn't an impossible amount of money. Like that might have been the amount of money I could have expected for a bonus one year. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was a life-changing gesture because I immediately realised that my boss had my back mm. uh, and that no questions asked they they um they wanted to support me um but it was frightening pressing send it was also uh, you know i used to leave i would leave uh you know the office for example when i had to leave towards the end of a pitch or you know i would just have to just suddenly say to people i'd get a phone call and i'd have to say oh, i've got to go and i've got to go now or so i'm really sorry so could, that meeting i was going to do can you do that one move that one to tomorrow and i'll see you all later um and i would leave and you know you'd, you'd sit there and go well i'm setting the wrong example how can i expect everybody to really bust their asses when i'm not um why did i leave this job i'm going to let everybody down you know people have really backed me you know they've chosen me over other people um, if I screw this up, it's going to look like I can't do a CEO job, so I won't get another one. Um, all of this stuff goes through your your whizzes through your mind. Um, how how did you how did you kind of quiet those those voices? What did you do to kind of combat that? Well, a few th- so there's a few things I did myself, and then my, the most important things are what other people said to me. So what actually started happening was. Um, uh, uh, I, I don't. I hopefully won't get too emotional when I say this, but but I used to get emotional when I told this story originally a few years ago. Uh, people would start coming up to me either down the pub or, um, or you know, while I was making a coffee, and they'd quietly say to me, "Hey, I heard what I heard. You left that pitch. I heard your daughter is um, in hospital, and I just wanted to say how um, impressed I am that you." putting them first it's like to have somebody in in uh, you know the ceo role behaving in that way it sets a totally different example than than i've ever seen and i and this happened like all the time like 
So that told me two things. One, one, one people as well, we know what we're like, right? We don't always say things like that to, to our bosses. So people felt sufficiently compelled to say it to me. And, and I'm talking, you know, scores of people over the, over those couple of years would say it to me. Um, but they'd come and say it in a quiet moment because they didn't, you know, because they didn't know how public I wanted to be and they didn't know whether they were supposed to know. So I just felt this overwhelming sense of support and that people, and also I realised that, uh, what did I realise? I realised there's another way of leading. Uh, I always used to find it frustrating when people, you know, when there was a sort of presenteeism culture, when your bosses would look around and say, well, so-and-so on your team's not here at seven o'clock, um, so are they really committed? Particularly if I knew they were committed, it would make me annoyed, but actually I found myself ending up leading in the same way and, and you know, consciously and subconsciously thinking, well, if you're not around, how committed are you? And um, and also, if you're putting your family first, you know, it was, it's not a, it's not necessarily a um, popular decision at this point in 2016. It's funny, it doesn't sound that long ago, but um, but a lot has changed since then, and um, it's not a popular decision to say I can't be in a pitch meeting because something's going on at home. Uh, and I think there's all what you've always got to make decisions about that. And by the way, I have at times, you know, decided that I need to be in the pitch, not, you know, not prioritize the personal thing, but each time you have to make a decision, right? So, um, so yeah, you real, I realized that I could get the work done. I just had to find a different way of getting it done in the, in the hours when I was able to do it. You know, by the way, I probably worked just as many Saturdays or Sundays as I had done before, but I did it on my terms and, and I knew that the team around me supported me to do that. And the other thing that I decided is um, the worst thing that could happen at this point in for my family is that I lose my job uh, or my mind. Mm. So I decided to look after myself. So I, I actually, you know, I started exercising more probably than I had done. I started, um, uh, I started to eat better and I, uh, and I made sure that I was in as good shape as I could be. What, what, what was it that really made you make that decision? What were your, how are you currently living and how are you currently feeling mentally? Well, none, it's weird. None of them were, they weren't conscious decisions. I, you know, you just. You'd, I just felt an oversense over. I just felt a massive weight that, um, particularly at the point at which we're still paying, you know, we're still thinking we're going to have to pay for for private healthcare. What actually happened is my daughter went into the NHS, and actually that's when everything started to uh, a slow journey, a very slow and very long journey to to a good place. But um, but I. I have felt a huge weight that I, I, it was important that I uh, had a job for my family and therefore it was important I did a good job because it's doing a good job that keeps you in a job. Mm. I think you mentioned that you saw a photo of yourself at that time. What, 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 what did you think when you saw that photo? Um, yeah, I looked terrible. I think I looked, is that what I said? I looked terrible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, like, I looked, um, yeah, I mean, 
you're sort of operating on the edge bit. I mean, probably nobody else noticed because it just, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, probably to, if I showed it to you, you just thought it was just slightly less, you know, slightly uh, uglier version of me than me. But, um, but I, yeah, I look at it and think, well, you're, you're not, you're not well, mate. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I, I think, uh, I think you, I realized that my people have my back. Uh, and then I looked after myself and then I should also huge shout out to my family all of them my my wife and their and my all three of my daughters but but my two daughters who weren't in hospital um uh went through a lot uh and we all of us as a unit have somehow found a way through it uh and it would be impossible to say any of those were really deliberate smart decisions you just making do and you're making decisions in the moment all you can do is your best right so uh so yeah so i had all that going on i had all that going on so uh you get yourself into running mm. you start eating better you getting into a better state and you've you've since progressed in have since that time what's your career journey been there yeah so again you know talk about so nothing ever happened at the right time in in a career in life right but in a career so it happens when it happens and and so the we did you know we worked hard and we started winning pitches in Havas London and 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 by 18 months in we we become a runner-up in the campaign agency the year uh you know we took Havas from nowhere to some big pitch wins we were like top I think we came second in the campaign new business list and we we were a runner-up for agency of the year and uh, and because of course I've got um, my jack of all trades uh, uh, slash uh, by this point it's becoming multilingual across key disciplines mm. um, because I've got that to my um, story. Uh, the CEO of Havas Helio, which is our direct marketing or customer engagement CX agency, depending on which year you uh, year you use uh, uh, the words change, but um, the CEO uh, left and Chris Hurst asked me to take on the leadership of that agency as well. Frankly, I think we all knew it was probably a bit too soon. You know, if, if everything had remained the same, I definitely wouldn't have taken that role on. That probably happened, you know, that happened sort of just under two years into me being at Havas probably, and I took the role. Um, but that definitely happened sooner than probably was natural i pro it, you know probably if i if we had sat there you know my boss and i'd sat there and said right at what point will that that make sense it would have been much further down the road time wise but life doesn't happen like that people don't resign when you want them to and things move on so i got an opportunity um when i wasn't expecting it um to take on an additional role across another agency in Havas. Uh, and uh, that was exciting. It was exciting because actually going in and doing the role in Havas London was probably the first time I'd not worked in customer engagement or direct marketing or um, for, you know, 15 years. I'd always had at least part of my life in that. Even when I was at DDB, we were running all of the direct marketing and the digital comp as well as the brand advertising on the client side I was working at in those fir first years at DDB. So 
So yeah, so I suddenly was the CEO of two agencies. And How much more responsibility yeah. are you taking on? That can't be anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was crazy. I mean, it's unhinged, right? <laughs> <laughs> But this you is imagine point, right? how many people then how many people after? So I suppose I went from managing about somewhere between two hundred and two hundred and fifty people to managing well another hundred and fifty people. So mm. so um uh so yeah. But life is interesting because uh that whole point about things not happening when it when it's convenient for you, uh sometimes they happen much more slowly. So actually I was behind a lot of my peers. You know, by the time I was a, was a managing partner at DDB, I'd taken a real sideways, I'd made a decision to move, you know, I was the deputy MD of an agency and I decided to sort of step at best sideways and, a, you know, really slightly half a step down, become a managing partner amongst several managing partners. So, so my, your career sometimes moves slower than you want it to and sometimes faster depending on what's going on in the world around you, yeah. none of which is within your control. All you can do is is make sure you're doing a good job and that people have suddenly got decisions they didn't think they would have to make. So yeah, so I took that on and um, and yeah, sort of never looked back. We you know, have us Helio. We've I'm so proud of. We've done a brilliant job. We you know what actually happened is we won. Pre that market's slightly differently shaped from the advertising market. There tends to be one or two big pitches a year in that market. And we won the big pitch every year for four years. We won nice. Starbucks, Lloyd's Banking Group, Compare the Market, Volkswagen Group and all its brands. Um, but that required, a t I had to do exactly what I'd done in Havis London, which is go in and completely restructure the, the agency, um, bring new people in, unfortunately exit some some people. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, and configure it in a way that uh, that I thought was going to, you know, help us bring the agency forward and and really succeed. And so we're going to get on to a minute about you know all of the interesting things you've done while at Hamas. Um, but finishing off your sort of career journey, July twenty twenty two, Hamas goes through a big change, mm. and they merge to companies together and there's a big shift in in roles and your role change what happened mm. there so they haven't merged two entities really important to say so what happened was uh was a decision was made to pull the ceo of the health group across the creative network as well so mm. those networks uh rightly remain separate now and now of course what's actually happening is we're learning more from each other and there are some there are some uh, shared capabilities that we're we're building, but they they importantly do quite different things. They they share some things, but they actually do very different things uh, in many ways. So they exist as two separate networks, and you know my view is that will remain. But I yeah I got a new boss, so I got a new boss, um, and uh, and the boss that brought me in to have us left, um, and uh, and you know that was really destabilizing. Uh, but I, you know, and oh, I well. got given more agencies as a result. Well, because any change, humans, it's funny because change is seen to be a very coveted um, capability or or state of being uh, in business. Uh, but the truth of it is, human beings are not programmed to be good at change. They're programmed to 
uh, to identify routines that work for them and stick to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only when it's forced on you that um, you know that, that the you know the outside world uh, uh, forces things on humans that they really change and they change because they have to, not because they want to. So, um, so it's just yeah. You become UK Group CEO. So this is the point at which I become Group CEO of uh, Have Us Creative. Yeah. So I t- difference. How do you? So I've taken on. I've taken on some additional agencies. Basically, I mean that's the best way to describe it. Um, and how many? So you're now managing seven. Uh, depending on how you count them, uh, six, six or seven agencies. Yeah. Wow. Um, so. And that's seven hundred yeah. other people. Yeah, yeah. So the remit's changed now. What what has changed within your role from when you were just at Habas as one CEO to now being where you are? What kind of? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, because I was set out by trying to change. You know, thinking so when I took on Habas Helia, I changed some stuff underneath me, but fundamentally, I did. I still was able to operate in the way I was doing before. I probably did a bit more work, but Habas London was already on a good journey i stayed very involved in have us london and just you know uh waded into have us helia as well when i t- took on the additional agencies a year ago i tried to do the same and that clearly wasn't gonna um work i learned <laughs> um and so what you know what i've really learned is that uh is that i do now I, you know i've had to take a step back and think think about the things that i need to achieve in my new role which are actually different from the things i need to achieve in my old role some of them um but also how can I keep an aura in so I feel connected with clients um, and I still have the ability to influence in a positive way the quality of the work we do as an agency for our clients. Uh, but I have to do that differently than I did before and I have to be more choiceful. Uh, I also, you know, and I also have to, I've had to uh, put people in, you know, so for example, I've appointed um, somebody to be the CEO of, um, of Have Us London so that they can lead but you know that well without me mm. i'm still involved in Hamas london but it's not my job to to lead that agency mm. on its own primarily so how do you do that you manage six or seven agencies mm. you know do you pop pop to one every three days and go how are you getting on guys how do you do do what you do a lot of talking a lot of talking so i th- i think um and is there a structure to it Probably, yeah. I mean, there's definitely structure to it. There's probably not as much structure as as other people might put in place. That's just probably more down to my style, and maybe I need to put a bit more structure than I've got. But um, the the way the the way that I think I do it, but you probably have to ask the people that work for me. Is is I uh, I, I sort of either sail very sort of uh, high up, or I drop really deep in. Um, so, so I'm having regular weekly conversations with all of those agencies and not just the people that are running them. I, you know, I'll be talking to people that are running the key accounts, some of the other leadership team. So I've got a whole set of meetings that are, that are set up as regular meetings. And, and by the way, they probably constitute nigh on, you know, let's say 40% of my time sort of chance, regular chances to talk and listen to people. Um, but I have an agenda for those or you so uh, they flow naturally. No, I mean sp- specifically not an agenda. They're they're a chance to for people to update me uh, and or if I've got a particular um, uh, area of focus for that agency or for the group as a whole that I w- want to 
pick their brains on or communicate or redirect or whatever it is, I'll use them for that. And of course, as a result, you know, the, I think sometimes the problem with having too fixed an agenda is that is that the agenda leads the way rather than the things that matter. Um, and you do something interesting with your diary. The morning. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. What, what's, no, what do you do? No, no uh, formally prearranged meetings for 10 a.m. And what's the thinking behind that? So your every day, your calendar is clear yeah, so at 10 o'clock. I'm in the office by about half eight, quarter to nine, even though I live in bloody Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> what time uh, do you leave? Uh, I leave the house about seven or, or you know, seven or half seven, depending. I mean, I also, by the way, try not to sort of, it's always that time I leave, always that train I get. I, Because I, the other thing is you've got to manage your energy levels. Some days you can take on the world. So I'm awake by six, so I'm left the house by quarter to seven and, you know, sometimes even earlier. Other days you're dragging yourself out of bed. It's not going to benefit anybody. You 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 ride your energy levels to work out how you're, you're going to be of best use to people. Because if you don't, you drain yourself even more. So, so, um, so I'm sort of, I always, I'm basically saying I've got a minimum of an hour, uh, every day at the start of the day, uh, when I've, when I'm, when I'm around and available for conversation. Um, because as we all know, um, you write a list at the start of the day, uh, and you'll have spent the whole day busy, but at the end of the day, you might well have not touched quite a few things that you thought you were going to do because other stuff happened along the way. So, um, and I think it's really important to realize that, uh, that a big chunk of what we do, particularly in a service driven industry is, um, is stuff that you won't know about at the start of the day and that's all right uh, and not to see that as a as something that's getting in the way but something that is the nature of what we do being responsive and being available is super super important so people so of course what happens is people know they can catch me i i position myself in the cafe at work uh people will text me the night before on the way in and uh, uh and if and if i have if they haven't done that i will you know i will know the people i need to talk to and if neither of those things are necessary i can spend an hour getting some done um and you don't sit yourself in a corner office somewhere you know in your own space you know with your you know big desk you're gonna in the christmas hour come in. <laughs> how do you do things but nobody does that now right well maybe a few people do but um yeah i sit on a pod with so I, I sit on a pod with my team, but just on the floor with everybody else. So on the pod next to us, um, you know, are you know, you know, some of the account teams are planners. Uh, Why do you do that? I I think so much in an agency in any organisation, but I can only talk about agencies really. So much in an agency happens by osmosis. Um, you, I think you feel things, you hear things, uh, and. And I always talk about my antennae flickering. You know, my antennae are always flickering for something. I, 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 you, as much as the overt communication, I'm looking for body language. Uh, you can hear when there's a buzz around the place. You can hear when people are nervous. Mm -hmm. You can hear when uh, when there's no energy. You can see whether people are deflated without anyone saying anything. So I think being in and around it is so important. Uh, you can also, through your own behaviours, communicate um, really positively. You c you can let people know you've got good energy going on yourself. So, so look, I'm a big fan of uh, of being out and amongst it. 
Uh, I've got a room that that um, that I can go to if I need to have confidential conversations or a meeting or whatever. But I'm mostly not in it. <laughs> um, in fact, not. In fact, I also have a terrible thing where where other you know other people, if there isn't a room, will want to use it, and then I feel bad about kicking them out. So, uh, so you're more likely to find me um, uh, either at my desk or or in a cafe if I'm not in if I'm not in a meeting, um, and. I also think that fosters much better conversations. If someone's got to step into your office, the power dynamics f- is totally screwed. You can't have a level conversation with somebody uh, who's going to be honest with you and relax with you if they are sat the other side of your desk in your office, your and your power being communicated subconsciously just by where you're having the conversation. So I'm sat with a lukewarm cup of tea or coffee. <laughs> Um, in the cafe, um, picking up conversations. Numbers. As CEO, mm. what are the metrics you're looking at on a regular basis? What you know for someone listening who's may become CEO one day or is now, what what can they learn from that? So, uh, yeah, so I've got sort of four um, metrics I look out for. Um, constantly and that we are actively measuring um now obviously there obviously there's a there's a set of commercial um measures uh but that so just let's go quickly through them and talk then talk a bit more about that so you've got commercial measures you've got um you've got product you know you know what we're actually making for our clients the quality of the work we're making uh you've got the client satisfaction or the clients happy with not only the work we're making but the way we're doing it do they like working with us and do they think we're doing a good job and then you've got what do our people think are our people happy what do they think of the agency what do they think of the leadership team what how do they feel about each other do they like coming to work so so how clients feel how do um our people feel how good is the work is that delivering the money? And it sort of works, you know, probably works. You've probably got one out of order there. Actually, it's about uh, how are your people feeling? Uh, how are your clients feeling? Mm-hmm. Both those things are good. You're going to make good work. And if all three of those things are good, you're going to make money. Mm-hmm. And how? Do, what are you, tools are you using to read this data? Uh, we've got, so we got, so, uh, so we've got very regular financial forecasting. We do a dip of client satisfaction. Uh, so one question, like a net promoter score. Um, Is this the one Stephen Woodford did at DDB? It's a, a lot of agencies use it across the industry, although not all. But it's a, um, yeah, it's basically it's on a score of one to ten. How likely are you to, you know, how happy are you and how likely are you to recommend us to, so that, to your colleagues and and friends the story behind that is stephen woodford asked an organization to create this yeah, yeah. thing Might from well that be, question yeah. and i so, don't know whether that's true or not so i'll take stephen's <laughs> word for it <laughs> got to bring him on yeah, yeah. find out um but yeah uh, okay that's how you do it yeah and you yeah yeah so you so you so that's that's how you measure the client satisfaction um obviously that that's not the only way that is is a useful um, uh, barometer because it's singular. 
mechanism. And really what it does is tell you how clients are feeling. Uh, and it's at a moment in time as well. So lots of people are working on, you know, in particular clients, obviously if they get a 10, they're delighted. But if you get a bad score, um, uh, there's always lots of reasons why, but it sort of doesn't matter because that's the way the client feels. That's the way the client feels. So it's super useful. Um, we do a star survey a couple of times a year. Um, and that's quite broad ranging. That looks at, that looks at everything from um, how engaged they are in, in what we're um, trying to achieve as a business to uh, how much they believe in the leadership to how um, how welcome they feel and how much they feel like they belong. Um, so we do that. Um, we have months, you know, I have, um, I mean, the agencies are looking at their numbers weekly from a commercial point of view, but we have, I have monthly um, finance um, reporting meetings where we look at exactly how everybody's doing. And, and interesting, interestingly on that, am I right in saying that you have just one P&L that you look at rather than yeah, what's well, across? Yeah, so I mean, it's funny. I've been writing a document today. So yes, but of course, each leader, you know, everyone. The reality of it is, even when you're running an account, you've got a mini P and L from the minute you minute you're looking after more than two people or more, you know, and and a client because because uh, you are you're reporting on how much revenue you, you got, how many people you used to get that revenue. Um, did the client pay for all those people, all that kind of stuff? So, so yes, it all adds up to one P and L, and that enables uh, me and my teams to to um, uh, move people to where the need is really quickly and to stand up the right solution for clients. But everybody's got their own mini P and L, so that so that they know. Uh, and can and, and can have some control over things as well. So just to understand, is that one P and L for Harris Creative, and is that all the the sort of the, the well, of course, in the in the agencies in the end, you know, of course, have us reports one one number and it's in its numbers, and and underneath that, some you know, some guidelines for for how how that money got made. So so um, yeah, but across the you know creative group in the UK, it's one P and L. You know that P and L is all you know. When it's going well, it's you know everybody else's achievement, and when it's going wrong, it's all my fault. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's how it goes. Always away. Yeah. Always away. Um, and I'm then and then just creative work, right? We didn't talk. So the the all, the most important thing and the driver of client relationships uh, and people being happy is actually is the work we're making good. Um, and has it been an enjoyable process getting there, right? But the but actually, I believe the work's always better if if it's been a, a, an enjoyable process. And that's not to say there's not friction along the way, but um, but uh, yeah, I keep a real close eye on the on the on the work that's going out the door, and if it's good, and uh, and if there's an opportunity to really really make an outstanding piece of work, I will judge whether it's going to benefit from me being around or my senior team being really deeply involved in it or not um, and if the team have got it without me then I won't bother them if I think I've got something I can add then I'm not afraid to sort of um, plonk myself in a creative review and make a nuisance of myself um, hopefully that's not how it feels but um, but uh, but yeah so so we measure creative yes by award but I also just uh, make my own judgment about whether I think the quality of our work is uh, high enough, uh, and I feel able to do that because I'm lucky to have spent my career in and around the best work.
what I think I love about you is that you do, you're really keen to implement changes to change not only have us, but the industry. And, you know, that some of that comes from your own life experience. Yes. Moving on from numbers over mm -hmm. to people, you see here that you've updated the parental leave policy mm -hmm. to ex extend to six months paid leave for both mothers and fathers. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very groundbreaking. And for mothers, it was previously six weeks at full pay and 20 at 50%. Mm -hmm. And for fathers, it was four weeks at full salary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was only two weeks when I got there. So we changed it to four weeks, you know, pretty early on. And then then we've gone again. So so it was two weeks when you got there, which yeah. is the same as it was when you were in your yeah. early 20s. Yeah, yeah. Why did you change it? Um, Because... It's a talent game, right? So, like, we exist in, a, in an industry which is oversaturated. Either there's too many agencies um, and not enough good people. Um, and um, and so, I wouldn't even say part of my job. All of my job is to make sure we've got more of the best talent at working for us so that we can do more of the best work for our clients than our competitors. And the only way to have more of the best talent is to m create an environment where more of the best talent wants to work for you, not anybody else. Um, now, what does more of the best talent look like? It doesn't look like a bunch of blokes that uh, all had two weeks paternity leave off and happened to get a leg up because they didn't have to take a year out to have a kid, right? Um, uh, what it looks like is an environment where if you're f***ing brilliant at your job, um, whatever happens in your life uh we want you around mm. uh if if you can contribute and you can help us be better um tell us what we need to do to make this a place you want to be um and so it sort of starts there um and as we all know an agency full of white middle class blokes um it, it just doesn't deliver the best work in the industry and uh, and isn't an environment for thankfully that most people want to hang out in anymore so so creating a diverse environment um it b both gives you a better chance of having the best people around in the first place but definitely gives you the best chance of keeping them around and when it comes to um parental leave it is critical that um that men and women get the same amount of time off from my perspective because because um because these are important moments in people's lives, and it's and uh, sadly it's a competitive advantage at the moment. So it's an it, on one side of things, it's a reason why people will want to come and work for us and stay working for us. Mm. Um, but you know what? It's really interesting having blokes uh, who are able to take six months off to be with their new children, uh, and we're only just, we're in year one of this right but what's starting to happen is uh, is uh, and i've encouraged our senior men to take the time as i encourage our senior women to but um is men are freaking out <laughs> oh god i'm gonna have six right so they want to have it and then they have a meltdown because what does it mean what's going to happen to my career so so i'm delighted because what's happening is at, is the men who have suddenly got this um this uh, ability to spend some time with their, you know, young families are choosing to do it and then are going through exactly the same experience that all women who have chosen to have children have gone through 
uh, for time uh, uh, immemorial. But and the um, and that is already interesting on a number of levels. One, just in itself, and two, because what happens? Uh, the men who are going off on paternity leave for that long definitely learn for the first time what it actually feels like to go off on maternity leave, and two, the all the people around them start to see how that feels as well because because it's it's um suddenly conversation and what's interesting is is because it's new for these men they are much more vocal about it i think women have accepted it's their lot and get on with it and what i've observed is is um is uh what's really happening is women have had to accept this uh because uh, they have no option, and uh, men uh, have never had to think about it at any depth that you think you have, but you haven't. So that's interesting. But you know what's amazing? People are joining us way out from having uh, being in a position to have families um, uh, because of this policy. Uh, people are staying with us because of this policy. Uh, it absolutely creates an environment uh, where you can bring an unfair share of the industry's talent into the agency. And um, on top of that, I just have a really passionate belief that you can never have equality um, while the only, while it's financially beneficial for women to take more time or to look after their kids than men. Now, I have nothing against a family that decides that um, that mum wants to stay at home rather than dad. But um, but the really important thing is that it's a choice you make for reasons other than financial necessity. Whilst it's financially necessary for a woman to choose to um, to uh, do something she doesn't want to because her partner. Um, uh, will bring more money in the process that um that's that's why we can't move forward so i hope in having given ourselves a competitive advantage that over the coming years it ceases to be a competitive advantage and that all businesses in our category will start to work in the same way uh, because that way uh, the entire industry will uh, have more talent in it than it's got now and that way uh, we will create cultures which are informed much more greatly by the outstanding women we've got in our industry and keeping them in our industry rather than um uh, than an industry that fails to keep those people around sorry that's me wanging on no i love that but, I love it. um so sort of there's a personal bit to it but you know it it makes extraordinarily sound business sense and with that as well amid this cost of living crisis you're you're investing a large number of a large amount of money into helping your staff navigate financial mm. hardships tell us a bit about that yeah uh yeah well again the it's a it's about looking after your people um and creating an environment where where talent stays and we're in extraordinary times and the truth of it is uh, we'd already started to see some people leaving, not even to go to other agencies, to 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 leave London. Uh, we start to see people to uh, who left the agency uh, to stay in London, but go into other industries that were able to look after people better. So, so um, 
so that mostly weirdly that mostly didn't happen in our age it mostly happened elsewhere but you could see the signals so we we very quickly decided we wanted to do a whole number of things and i i haven't got my list of stuff we've done but you know we um we looked at some things that cost less money but were going to be of high value to people and then we've done some things which probably cost a bit more money and then because we kind of couldn't afford to do them for everybody we targeted though we we took all the money we could afford uh to spend on on giving so we decided to give people a cost of living uplift in their salary for for uh, for six months and uh, we knew that we couldn't give a meaningful amount of money if we gave that to everybody. So we focused it at people who earn um, 30K or less and made sure all the money went there. Um, and we're talking, I think you spent 300 to 400,000 on, on this? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, which across an, across a number of agencies, um, I, I think it's really important to say we spent an affordable amount of money, which still enables us to hit our targets and, and make money. But, um, but we yeah we know that if you haven't got the best people you you or business will fail so so we made a proactive decision before before people had to were forced to leave to help them stay so what the way i look at it yeah i think it's yeah it's great how you just you you do things that aren't necessarily the the norm and you do things that cost a lot of money but what's your advice for you know a, a ceo or another business leader that's thinking maybe not that way where oh well 300 400k i could i could spend that on clients so we can get more work yeah um you, well you can have all the all the clients and all the work in the world you want but if you haven't got any good people to work on it you'll lose the clients pretty bloody quickly that's my advice um so that's the first bit of advice the other bit of a but I think it's really important to say because I, I, I always, um, I think people sometimes think you have to make a choice between making money and running a good, profitable business and looking after your people, and that's, that's sort, even that sort of subconsciously at the heart of this conversation. But it's not true. Um, you can run a thriving business uh, that makes a lot of money uh, and still look after your people. Uh, you might have to spend a bit more money um but you probably make more money out the other side in the long term so so i think that's the you know, most important point because uh, i you know it's unusual i just looked at my watch because because it, we've been talking for you know a while now and it's probably rarely go this long talk having this kind of conversation without mentioning the fact that we're a b corp and how passionately i feel about um about b corps generally but um, if you don't know what a B Corp is, it's a um, it's a different type of legal structure for a company, which means that you have to change your legal articles at company's house to put, and I'm paraphrasing, people, profit, and planet on an equal footing, um, which means that I and the board of Havas London are held accountable for doing that. So, so when we sit down and make decisions as a team, we're making decisions about balancing people, profit, and planet. Mm-hmm. But we're not making decisions about prioritizing people and planet over profit. We're making decisions to make sure they all act in equilibrium. And that's hard, but that's the way to do it, I think. And by the way, there are some people that disagree with me, right? There are some people, you know, further up the sort of um, uh, the the spectrum who would say, no, no, people and 
planet are more important than profit. I think it's, I think I'm, I'm aware and I appreciate and I'm excited and I like making money. Um, I think that there's a way, there are different ways you can do that. Um, and that, you know, that's my chosen strategy, but, um, uh, but so, so, you know, back, back to the point, yeah, we, we've spent money, but we haven't, we've, we've spent it wisely. Mm-hmm. And we spent it to look after our people uh, because they're the people that make us the money. Yeah. And with that, would you say that it's important for other leaders such as yourself to come together and unify around some of these issues that, you know, the industry's facing? Um, well, yeah, I mean, yes, I would. And, I, you know, when, I, when we first became a B Corp, I um, very publicly said it's the one competitive advantage I don't want to have. And I can definitely tell you it's been a competitive advantage and I can definitely tell you that um, a ton of small agencies have become B Corps and I, I you know, uh, probably entirely off their own bat, but I hope that in some small way, the fact that Have Us London certified, you know, um, helped or inspired some of them, but uh, very, very few slash no big agencies have really done it. In fact, Wyden and Kennedy have just done it, so so I should take that back. They're they're the first agency of any similar scale to us that have done it, and so um, so yeah. I from an industry perspective, again, this is one of the things you realise, right? You're in a position of responsibility and the ability to influence people. It's I mean, have us isn't you know have us London and then the agencies I look after. We're not talking about you know a company that can change the 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 world on its own but you do have influence and I've had to sort of I had to uncomfortably appreciate that um so you can choose not to use that or you can choose to use it right so I I know that if we behave in a certain way then other people will notice and um uh and that's a good thing so so you know one of the things that have us London have done is we've signed the Better Business Act um uh I've signed up to the Better Business Act now what that is trying to do is change uh, law in the UK, uh, so that uh, so that all companies are held accountable for the things that you're accountable for as you're a B Corp. So, um, if if that campaign succeeds, which will take a few years, then um, there won't be a board in the UK that is not expected and legally required to balance people problem mm-hmm. planet. Uh, so, I think that it is possible to uh, help create change outside of your organization by doing things the way you think they should be done within your organization. Um, And I'm proud to uh, spend, you know, some of my weekends and evenings um, forwarding some of those conversations, yeah. Excellent. And you, in April, just recently became chair of the Talent Leadership Group. For the IPA, yeah. uh, one of the biggest, most recognised trade bodies. Body, yes. Yeah. Um, what do you hope to achieve in that role? Why did you take it? Well, I nearly didn't take it. Um, so I said no originally. Um, I'm sure Layla and the guys at the IPA won't mind me saying that. But Why did you say no? Because I thought, who am I to be able to be the voice for for the next generation of talent in this industry and to try and um uh make this a more diverse and inclusive industry to be in um i know my story um and uh and there's only a certain amount of personal experience i can draw on 
so that's the first thing I thought. I think what I have, um, what pe- what people have impressed upon me is is that actually, uh, as I, I feel uncomfortable here, you can tell I'll start stuttering more because I don't like talking myself up too. I'm happier talking about stuff I've done rather than just sort of talking about how good it was. But, um, but I think what I realise is that some of the things that we've done. Uh, and that I've done, and some of the views I hold, and then the, and probably views that I'm prepared to to stand up behind as well. I think that's the other thing. I think people, I think I hope there's lots of people that have got the views I have, but they're probably a bit less comfortable about saying them out loud. Mm. Um, and that's not something I'm afraid to do. I really um, uh, value the principles I've got, and so yeah. So what? So I. So then I said yes after after a few people had talked me round. And we had a, and I actually chaired my first meeting last week. So, so look, what do I want to achieve? I think I want to achieve. Uh, I, 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 w- I want to make this industry a better place for people to come and earn a living. Uh, I think that um, I think we've been lucky as an industry to have had just incredible talent come and work um, in and around us, but. It's never been more competitive uh, in terms of attracting people to come and work in in communications agencies. Um, so part of the job is to is to uh, try and work with the IPA member agencies and maybe beyond that to uh, to help continue the progress that we're already making as an industry. Um, and uh, and I suppose to try and do a few tangible things. Um, you know some actions which which I can look back on and say um, we did some things um, that that um, that did move things forward that made this a um, a better industry to work in and helped agencies uh, attract better talent and train better talent and keep better talent. Love it. Really looking forward to seeing what happens yeah, yeah. at your yeah. time there. I've said that out loud. Uh, Got to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the other thing I should say is I think you know the IPA's got quite a difficult job, and and I have not been afraid to. You know, I sit on the IPA council, and those who know me will know I've not been. You know, I'm not afraid to share my views on on um, our industry. I think it, whilst I love it and it's brilliant, as a we've got a lot of distance to cover to become the kind of industry I think we we should be. Um, but um, but you've got to be on the inside to make a difference, and so you know those people that have uh, witnessed me have sort of um, overly emotional uh, blowouts at the IPA council meetings, and probably speak not very eloquently about stuff I believe in quite strongly. Um, will know that um, that if you're in it, you can make some change, and if you're not in it, it's harder. So. So I had to make that decision. Do I want to be on the outside, sort of going, oh, this industry's, you know, not where it needs to be, or do I want to be on the inside of the IPA game? Come on then. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? That We will see. Yeah. Find out. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> no, looking at what you've done at Havas, I think it looks really positive. So um, definitely exciting what's going to happen there. I'm going to read a quote from Vicky Maguire, yeah. who is my my creative uh, uh, partner in crime. She so she's chief creative officer of Havas London, and um, 
she's the person I spend most of my life with these days, frankly, other, other than my family. And she says, we're, we're wrapping up now, we're summarizing your life. Um, she says, wow, you can be a human in, about you. Wow, you can be a human in this industry and still be at the top of your game. Still know what you're doing. Still be inspirational, but not be an idiot. I've changed the last word there to censor it a little bit. <laughs> um, and I think that's what you're that's what you're sort of emanating into this world and to other people is that that ah there is a different way to be a leader. There is is a different way to be a CEO, and that will change a lot of people's lives. And I think that that whole the whole next generation, you know, of CEOs and of leaders mm. will be massively influenced by today's CEOs and leaders. So how you and others behave is really affecting the future. And I think you're showing that there is another way to do things, that you can be um, caring, you can be honest, you can be vulnerable, you can be, you can speak your mind and have a point of view without being an idiot. Um, and I think that's super, super cool. I think it's very inspiring. I think yeah. keep doing it. Keep speaking your mind. Feels awkward sitting listening. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait, you've got another poem coming. Um, but yeah, keep it up. I love to see how, how things are going to yeah. turn out for the next, well, the next few years. Thank you. And thank you for um, bothering to, um, well, ask to talk to me and, and bothering to listen. And I think if I could just say one thing in response to that, um, my biggest nervousness is that is that people think I'm any different from them. I, I'm I am deeply flawed human like everybody else. And some, like I think people go, oh, so I've got some principles. Oh, look, let's all, you know, uh, I th I don't like. I can't emphasize enough, you know, every day I have to make decisions. Sometimes I make the wrong ones, sometimes I make the right ones. I think, you know, I, the, the only things you can really take out of this conversation are to, uh, are that actually you can run a better business by looking after your people and uh, and that you can only really do your job um, to the best of your ability if you do it your way, not the way someone else told you to do it. Um, everyone's got that within their gift don't take people around you for granted and uh and uh, yeah i i i don't want i think the worst thing that happened here is people think well god you've got to hold yourself to such high standards here i kind of um i guess i, I i'm half you know i'm terrible at all kinds of things and i and i um continue to f stuff up and learn from it along the way I continue to be worried about whether you know whether I'm doing my job well enough, and um, and I know that sometimes I don't, um, and I, I that's I, I'm paranoid about having this sort of you know purposeful thing that's associated with me because it's you can't live up to it, um, and uh, so I sort of say to people, don't try to set your you know that you don't you don't need to be unrealistic or you just got to try doing one more thing um in a more impactful way and then see how it goes i think that's great advice yeah and that's really yeah advice. just keep keep doing things and stop 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 talking keep doing keep actioning and you seem to do that one by one to keep mm -hmm. look forward to the next one and one after that um can we finish i don't know on um <laughs> what you're gonna yeah can we finish on how's your daughter doing now yeah, she is um, uh, 21, 
Uh, well, first of all, I should say I've got three, as I've said, three daughters, and I'm proud of them all, and they're all doing brilliantly, and they've all had their own challenges and journeys to go on, um, as has my wife as a part of all of this, as have I. So we, you know, we move as a as a as a unit, and of course, in increasingly with independent factions, as my sort of strongly independently minded uh, uh, daughters grow into women and go off and live their own lives. But my the daughter I referred to, uh, Sadie, she's 21. She'll be 22 soon. And she um, she left, she spent two years in a psychiatric unit, um, uh, which is unusual, unusually long period of time. But she made it through and she uh, is now at... Uh, Campbell Arts course, a part of UAL University of the Arts London. Uh, she did her art foundation last year. She's doing a degree in sculpture now, uh, and she is a wonderful, effervescent, independently minded autistic woman who is uh, just as wonderful as my other daughters, and just as much of a pain in the. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, there you go. My oldest daughter's about to finish her training to become a teacher, and my littlest one's going to go and do a course in filmmaking. So I'm proud of them all, and uh, and my wife and I, uh, but in particular my wife, um, has uh, has been the person that's held it all together. Beautiful. Lovely to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, we end with a poem. We start with a poem, we end with <laughs> I made this. I love poems, by the way, so I'm, <laughs> but just probably not about me. Well, I made this as you we were going through as well, so you would have seen me scribbling here <laughs> and there. So from a... Story from Crystal Palace. We've heard it all here from the start and how doing the right thing will always allow luck to play its part. Now, our guest has described himself as down to earth, so you won't find him in the attic. While also, we can get anywhere we want as long as we stick at it. Passions and following your dreams can always get you noticed as long as you feel the benefits of seeing your feedback that can allow you to keep your focus. Seeing other leadership styles, he decided to go with what is truly him and what is pure, while also leading the way within leadership, showing all his staff how to endure. And also, by being truthful, you can enact the best policy, and you can always keep a clearer head when you choose to use honesty. Amen. Thank you very much. Don't know. I don't know what to say really. Thank Truthful is a good, uh, a good word. Uh, truthful is a good word. Love it. Thank you very much for for coming, and um, yeah, look forward to seeing what happens next. Cheers. Cheers.